Interview number 107, Laird Schaub, The Application of Story in Group Facilitation. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf, and I am so thrilled that you have found your way here, that you are interested, that you have the inclination, that you have the desire and the love of that thing that we hold up to the light here, that we examine in every facet, in every way, and that is the Art of Storytelling. The Art of Storytelling and its application to life, the Art of Storytelling and its application on stage, and the Art of Storytelling and its application in community. Which, if you have been paying attention, I hope, with your life, I hope you will notice how much that word is essential to the course of human civilization. And so when I tell you that the guest I have found for you, that the guest I have found for you is someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about the stories we tell and how those stories, the stories of our lives, not just the myths of the ancient Greeks, but more like the stories that we tell inside ourselves and how those stories become the stories of the places we live and the communities we live in. And this guest has really thought a long time about how we can change that story to better serve us as human beings. And that is Laird Schaub. Um, Laird has lived 36 years at the Sand Hill Farm, an income-sharing rural community in Missouri, which he helped found. He homesteads there, has raised two kids, and has developed a flair for preserving food and celebrating cooking. He also is the main administrator of the Fellowship for Intentional Community, a network organization he helped create in 1986, and that serves as a clearinghouse of information about North American communities of all types. In addition to being an author and public speaker about various aspects of community, He's also a meeting junkie and has parlayed his passion for good process into consulting business on group dynamics. I'm, I'm laughing because many people in my community here in the Vale, which is an intentional community, have called me a meeting junkie. In recent years, he's done a lot of co-housing, having worked with 35 different groups, many of them multiple times. His specialty is conducting up-tempo meetings with engaging full range of human input, teaching groups to work creatively with conflict, and at the same time being ruthless about capturing as much product as possible. In other words, getting things done. In 2003, he pioneered a two-year training in integrative facilitation that he's delivered four times and is now marketing across the continent. Now, I need to pause here for a moment before I introduce you to Laird and say, I've watched him work. I'm proud of my ability to facilitate. And I'm proud of, of how much facilitation I've managed to see in my life. I, I know many of you listening to me have not really um, heard me talk before about the role and how important facilitation is. But I trained with the Alternative Violence Project where we facilitated three-day workshops in prisons. And I facilitated 26 of these workshops. And I worked with some of the great masters 
of facilitating groups. And I was really, really impressed two years ago with Laird and this weekend again in my community, watching him work with the community and balancing the needs of both the individuals in the group and the need to change the story we were telling and how he was able to do that and how he was able to awaken to us, how he's able to awaken in us our own desire to change the story we were telling in that setting. And it's a great pleasure I'd like to introduce you and and thank Laird for coming on the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Eric. So do you have a story you could share with us? I knew you'd ask me that. My story is that as human beings, we're social animals, and we crave each other's kind. It's also true that we're all crippled gods, which means we have divine inspiration in all of us, and we're all damaged. We all have ways in which we fall short of the ideal. And in our attempts to share our divinity with each other, we trip over our damage. And my work is to help people land softly when they trip and to find again that divine inspiration that allows us to build bridges to one another in spite of the damage rather than leading with it and having that get in the way. One of the things that many people are familiar with is this idea that we become, we suffer damage in our lives, that we learn a story early in our lives and that in the story we're then stuck and we're repeating the story over and over again. But one of the things I've heard you talk, talk a few times about is that as facilitators of process that you don't accept role you're not there in the process to actually heal the individuals in their story how do you escape that role how do you escape ending up going around treating every broken ego well it's not about making somebody better it's it's making sure that they don't feel alone so it's important to hear everybody's story everyone's reality everyone's truth and accepting it for what it is As long as somebody's sharing authentically, and I always start with the idea that they are, I take their word for it and show them not just that I understand the words, but that I also get the essence of their experience. That means I have to connect with them psychically, emotionally, energetically. And if somebody feels heard, then it is possible for them to hear better what other people's stories are. So I don't have to decide between is your story right or somebody else's story right. I can can believe everybody about their own story, and then from that, we can decide what do we want to build together, accepting those as places to begin, rather than a battle over reality. It sounds really simple, and I've watched you do it, and I know how hard it is to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's really what I remind myself, I try to get into a state, kind of a shamanic state when I'm facilitating, where I know it's not about me, it's just about trying to reach and connect with the other people in the room. I'm trying to be not in the way. Um, trying to be a bridge or a midwife or the magic happening with the others in the room. Um, it's not, sometimes it comes across as magic when it's something that people haven't seen before and it's, it's surprisingly effective. It, it's simple enough to teach what the theory is. However, it means you have to be totally selfless in the moment to be really effective where you're just really there for that other person so that they feel you get them. And then as long as you interrupt that isolation, then there tends to be a relaxation for them around okay, I am in a circle where I'm being held, and now it's possible to think, what can I do in relationship to the others in the same circle? So that's basically what you're trying to get to. You don't have to go through that same particular focused effort. If people are, if things are flowing easily, this is when it's hard. That is when somebody's in distress, when somebody's feeling not 
gotten by the group. That's the way I, I drop everything else to make sure that they're not isolated. For those listeners who may not be comfortable or may feel like you're talking about a therapeutic situation, what you're saying is you're saying that by giving someone the ability to be heard Mm -hmm. and to be recognized, that then they can move past the defensiveness and the anger and the fear that they're feeling, and they can actually participate in the conversation that needs to happen. Yes, that's right. It's uh, a therapy is an attempt to heal the, the the trigger that goes into damage. I think, or that's the way I understand it. I don't have training in therapy, and I don't make any claims about that. I think it's possible people have a therapeutic experience of some of what I do, but that's not what I I promise or or think that I'm focusing on. Rather, I'm trying to be current, regardless of how the damage happened or what the story the person comes from, or what, what, for whatever reason they have come into distress relative to what's happening in the room at the moment. And so my job as a facilitator is to accurately hold that they're going through an experience and not having a judgment about the fact that they've had distress. It's just that there they are. I want to move from there. We're still wanting to be current on the conversation we're having. And so this is a way to deal authentically and not judgmentally with everybody in the room for the purpose of actually doing the work you agreed to come together to discuss. And for some people, for a lot of people... Dealing uh, the model for for meeting behavior or for really engaging with one another in our culture is mostly around what's your best thinking? How can you participate rationally? And for some people, that's a very easy way to share with others. However, for others, uh, rational constructs are not easy to come by. They they may know things more surely in their belly or in their heart, uh, either intuitively, emotionally, and kinesthetically. They know them a different way, and they are asked to translate that into rational thought in order for it to be accepted in the room. And that's really putting them at a disadvantage and not taking taking them in where they're strong and where they're clearest. So the wider we can create the field in which to work with the information, the more accurately we're holding it and the more more exciting it can be for the people that are speaking in their primary tongues. This is Carolyn Franzini, the organizer of the Cave Run Storytelling Festival, Moorhead, Kentucky, held the last Friday and Saturday of September, and you are listening to the artist storytelling with Brother Wolf. For those people who, again, this, this seems like we're, we're reaching pretty far here, what are the rewards of holding people in distress? What, why, what is so advantageous about approaching group facilitation in this way? Well, there's a couple things. Uh, first of all, you're able to more accurately get the information from that person if you can accept it where it is at. For instance, somebody may have a stronger, more clear response to a thought or an idea or somebody else's actions through their emotions than through their thinking. And so if that's where they want to speak and it's relevant to the topic, let's hear it where it is. That's information we can work with. It's also energy. So when somebody brings their emotions, their passion into the topic, if you can get that accurately held, you can think think of it like a fire hose. Think about the juice, the, the, the power, the energy, the emotion is the water going through that hose. If nobody's holding the hose and it's flopping around uncontrolled in the room, people can get hurt and a lot of damage can be done. A lot of people are afraid of strong feelings in meetings because they feel it's connected with aggression, blaming, dumping, attacking. And when those things happen, damage happens, bad things happen. It doesn't help. However, if that same fire hose is held 
caringly, but with purpose, you can apply that that water to the problem. That is, you can harness the energy from the passions to focus on the issue. You can ride the wave of the energy rather than be afraid of it. So there's those things. Also, another piece is, is the implementation, that if you try to make agreements with people who are in distress and are feeling isolated, they often don't really understand what they've been asked to agree with, or they will renege on it or feel maybe manipulated into it at the time, or they didn't even really understand what was going on if they're really in distress. So you've lost them as an active participant in the buy-in of the agreement. And that can be very expensive when it gets to what is it a- actions you want the group to take afterwards. So while it may be quicker to blow by somebody who's in distress and doesn't seem to be articulate at the moment, it can also be very expensive to leave people behind. It can be damaging to the group, and it can be isolating for the individual. So by expensive, you mean that work that's done doesn't stick and you have to redo it again? Yes, and it could even be to the point if somebody might be resentful and feeling unhappy about how things proceeded, they may feel left behind, they may feel unheld, unheard, and they may be resentful to the point even of sabotage of the decision, much less non-compliance. And that, that can be very expensive. What are the dangers? What are the ways people misinterpret this style of facilitation? Well, there's lots of ways to misinterpret. I suppose one of the biggest ones is uh, many people have learned to be afraid of welcoming strong feelings into meetings because they're afraid it'll get out of hand, people will get hurt, the fire hose won't be held firmly, it'll be flopping around and people will get bonked in the head with a nozzle, or uh, they'll get water up the nose or something like that. So because they've had best past experiences with that, they're nervous about allowing that wild animal into the room. Whereas I think it's uh, it's welcoming people where they are, welcoming the whole person. They may feel like it puts us at risk. They may feel like if we go into emotional examination, it's hard to know how that will actually relate to the product that you're trying to get or the problem solving you're trying to do. They're afraid we'll waste time. So there's there can be tremendous nervousness that can be based on decades of experience of bad bad results when people let feelings happen in the room. I think, though, you can have standards for what's appropriate behavior emotionally, just as you do with people talking on topic when they're giving rational rational input to things. So, so for example, I would say it's okay to to tell me that you're angry. It's not okay to tell me you think somebody else is a a jerk. So name-calling doesn't help. However, if you do talk about, I'm having a reaction, I'm feeling afraid, I'm feeling upset, I'm, those kinds of things are very useful, or they can be, as an insight into what's powerful about this topic or that person's experience with it. So I always assume it's relevant, and that leads to a, a calming, an accurate, a, a deeper interest, and we get more creativity when it comes to the problem solving, because there's less brittleness. There's less, I'm fighting for my life. I'm fighting to be seen. Instead, it's like, I'm with my tribe, and together we'll solve this problem. What about in larger groups? Do you feel like in many of the groups you've worked with that there's a story being told in the group, a group identity story? Uh, one of the things you talked about um, in the meeting today here at the Vale, you talked about in changing the culture group, how you really need more than one or two people to come back to the group to, to change the culture of a group. Uh, I was just curious about some of the examples you've seen of stories groups have told or that might need to be examined or looked at. I work with about 15 to 20 groups a year at this point in my career. I've been doing this for 20 years. Now, that's been built up slowly over time, but it means I've worked with many, many groups, probably 60, 70 groups, and a number of them multiple times. It's common in groups, maybe over 50% of the time, 
there'll be a story in the group that so-and-so is a problem, that everything would be much better if it weren't for so-and-so. It's common to have groups where that's not in play. However, that phenomenon happens quite frequently. My professional experience has been, because I don't buy the story, that is, I don't assume that analysis is necessarily correct, what I assume instead is that, okay, a lot of people are having problems with so-and-so. Let's find out what's going on. So but when I go directly to so-and-so and talk with them or have an experience, because I don't buy the story that they're necessarily a problem, they probably have challenging behaviors. However, I assume they really mean well and they'd like to be part of the group. By starting with that basis, I can get different cooperative, dynamic behavior out of that person 80% of the time within 24 hours of my arrival because I don't buy the story. I assume that they want to participate. If I look for participation, if I look for interested comments, I find them. I think what it is is a lot of us, this is a natural tendency, is we find what we're looking for. So if the story is so-and-so is obstructive, is uh, is difficult, is uh, manipulative, whatever, fill in the pejorative blank, then that's what you'll find, the evidence to support your story. It's a much better story to have that everybody's doing the best they can, even if some people aren't doing it in a way that's easily recognized. So I try to find where is the place where they mean well and try to be the midwife of that being received, translating their input into a story that's more palatable to the group. And then, aha, we've got a miracle. It doesn't look like a miracle to me, but they haven't they haven't seen the possibility that a bridge could be built with that person because their normal methods, the things that work with them, don't work with that person. I don't have to try the normal methods. I try anything that'll work. And then I find something that will. In your experience working with all these different groups, are there other examples of how groups tell themselves a story about an outcome, approaching a problem, or um, building a group culture that might be toxic or self-destructive in terms of changing that that culture or that story? Well, there's lots... People sort into many spectrums, and so one of them that would be important important here to stories would be risk tolerance, Um, how much people are willing to... Do they find new ideas threatening or exciting? And so for people, if they are more on the let's be risk-averse, let's play it safe end of the spectrum, then they will tend to try new things very little because they like... They feel it's more secure, more satisfying, more less anxious or anxiety-promoting pr- to do what they know works rather than take a chance on something new. There's a story, then, that new things are unsafe, and that helps them feel better about not even being open to them. And so my job sometimes is to say, wow, you're doing things this way, and I know other groups that do things another way and like it even better. Are you interested in that? And then I can see whether or not there's openness not to ram something down their throat, but to invite them to maybe there's other things out there beside what they already know. Sometimes they're interested, sometimes not. I have to try to build a bridge to where they are and not say, you got to play in my sandbox or, or it doesn't count. So my job is to, first of all, my number one job whenever I'm with a group is to show them that I get them where they are without judgment and with accuracy. And from there, there's an exhaling. There's a sense of, oh, this guy sees us. I don't have to be so guarded. I know I'll be held, and when I do that well, they'll even allow me to challenge them and think, let's think about another way to do something. But I never do the challenging until I first establish the connection in the sense of accurate holding. Do you think it's possible to hold people, as you described it, without being the facilitator in charge of the process? Absolutely. 
In fact, that's really the goal here. I think, although I teach facilitation, I do it from from a perspective that many, many more people would like to have cooperative and connecting experiences with others than know how to do that. And so in our, our good intentions are not enough. We come out of a culture that's adversarial and hierarchic and competitive. And so what we learn how to do is how to battle and how to manipulate, how to attack, how to win engagements, especially if the stakes are high. Even if we have a commitment in our heart or in our minds to being more cooperative and more bridging, that's not how we act when the stakes are high. We go back to our deepest conditioning. So if you have skilled facilitators who understand what the commitment to cooperation means and how to build those bridges in those delicate moments, you can remind people and call out this other self where they'll behave not in their reptilian brain but in the more mammalian brain where they're, where they're really acting at their higher, their higher ideals in those moments with the high stakes. So, and, and that as groups mature, though, as they learn to develop a culture of cooperation, a container to hold those challenging moments that's productive and not alienating, then the need for the facilitator to do that becomes less because the whole group holds it. So I see the, the focus on facilitators now as a transition to a, a cooperative culture and one that's very important to us successfully going through the incubation period. So many people I know have suffered so much damage with good intent to undertake cooperative processes and then don't know how to do it, have bad results, and wind up ultimately doing as much damage as they experienced in the kinds of competitive and adversarial environments that they were trying to move away from. You don't need to be a specialist to do this. Anyone can do this skill set just about. Yes. What you have to care about is wanting to make connections and then trying to develop your facility to understand what's going on for you so it doesn't get in the way, and then being able to accurately hold what's going on for others. That's really the essence of it. And then seeing how one person's story might be translated into a language or a framework or a container that another person recognizes. You you notice somebody says something and it doesn't land in a way that's being recognized by somebody else, and you see the miss, and you think, Okay, I get what this person's saying, and I also see how it might land for the other person. So how can I recast the one story in a way that's still recognizable to the speaker, but now receivable to the listener? And that's the art of it. This is what's somewhat different from maybe the traditional storyteller who definitely has to be successfully and accurately interactive with their audience. But a lot of times what I'm trying to do is trying to connect two people in the audience, not the audience to me. I'm trying to be the go-between, not the endpoint or the starting point of the communication. I think sometimes when I apply these principles, and I'm very comfortable applying them, but when I apply them, I feel like I get to a place of recognizing where that person is at, and then I, you know what it is? is I feel like when I apply this stuff that I end up applying it at times when someone is upset at me. Mm-hmm. and I'm not a third party. Does it still work when someone is upset with me to try to do this? It's always a good idea to develop the skill of being able to show people that you've heard them accurately. 
Um, one of the challenges, though, is if you are the trigger for this other person, they may be very be very suspicious of your motivation to reach out to them. Um, I've, it's not unusual for somebody to feel unsafe with you reaching out to them because if you've triggered them, they may think you're looking for additional information to imp- to implicate them in some bad way. You may they may be very suspicious of what you're trying to do. So that the very same question or comment you might make in all good faith would land differently if it was done by a third party with whom they have no aggravation. If you make it prior to having de-escalated the upset in an attempt, a good faith attempt to make a connection, they may mistrust your motivations and it may not be successful, even though you're, you're, you're acting from a clean place. Many storytellers attempt and try to work within guilds and groups. And within the guild and group, it is a common experience that people come to the group not to work necessarily on stories, but to have the ability to be social in that group or to to come there. And, and honestly, I see nothing wrong with that. Um, but it can be frustrating for the professional storyteller who is seeking to work on material exclusively. Um, and sometimes there's conflict within the guild about the agenda of the group in terms of the amount of time spent gossiping and hanging out and the amount of time uh, working. And within that also, there sometimes in groups there can be conflict about how to give each other feedback or whether the feedback is accepted. And, uh, and I've always advocated very strongly on this show for the idea that it's really important in a group to agree to a set of principles in terms of how you give feedback. And, and, there's, and you can listen to other shows. You're interested in, those, in learning about that and how you can create your own space for coaching each other. In particular, Mary Hamilton's show, which is show number one, has a wonderful show on how to do your own retreats and storytelling um, uh, development series. But what I was leading up to here is that these skills you're talking about have an almost daily application in the current world. And sometimes when I'm applying them, I do feel like I'm letting my guard down. Like everybody's walking around with swords and shields, and you're saying to me, well, the best way to make things work is to put your sword and your shield down, even though they have a sword and a shield. That, that, but that's not what you're saying. <laughs> I think it's to your advantage to develop your skill as a listener, an accurate listener, in all situations. That never works against you. That is, people, I can't guarantee you everyone will be well-intended in how they engage you or that you will be heard well. However, it will tend to relax the people who talk to to feel well understood and and you're right to say that this isn't just a meeting skill um, what you learn to be a good facilitator can be applied as an accurate listener in all situations whether there's some kind of formal meeting setting or it's just informal so it's it's um it's a unilaterally a good thing um, however it can be very frustrating if you're expecting to be treated in kind and you may be able to give others something that you don't receive in return because you're not with other people that dedicate themselves to that same craft so um, that can be a lonely place however it the, the point is i want to sell you the idea that it's good for you to accurately receive information from others whether or not they get it from you in return or not because think of it this way there's a biological example here of if you're a diabetic and you step on a nail, it's very good idea that your foot hurts and you know it. Um, it's, I mean, I said a diabetic because you're, um, 
you uh, you may not you lose f- sensation sometimes in your extremities as a diabetic. And one of the dangers is you might not feel a nail in your foot. And while it's not a good thing to feel pain, it's a very necessary biologic feedback loop so that you get a chance to know, oh, there's something wrong with my foot. And I look and, oh, my God, there's a nail in it. Now I can pull it out so I don't get uh, lockjaw or something. And if you're a diabetic, you might not feel the pain. Okay, that's good because we don't like feeling pain. But meanwhile, you don't have information that the nail's in your foot. So the parallel here that I'm trying to get to is that if you're doing something that doesn't land well with somebody, it's really important to know that. You may wish that it landed well, and you're sorry that it landed poorly. However, if you don't get the information that it lands poorly, or you fight it off by either overreacting or beating yourself up or punishing the other person, people learn to not give you the feedback, then you don't have the information to improve. Even if it's a one-way street, it's still in your interest to not interrupt accurate flow of information about what people are telling you. So for that reason, it's even if it's not reciprocated, which should be better, it's still in your interest to, to do that skill well in all situations. You mentioned earlier that there are sometimes tensions in storytelling groups about what people want to get out of being in the group or what people's openness is to feedback from other storytellers about how they apply their craft. And I think something that's important in any group, and this is not just about intentional communities, but really any group that's doing anything serious in the world, would be what do we want out of being a member of that group? That's one of the areas in which groups can often be ambiguous. Some people may want more of a social agenda. Other people may want more of professional critique or, or skill building in their, in their craft. None of those are bad objectives. However, if people hold different objectives and that's never examined, there's bound to be tension because people will be trying to push it, their interests, and that will be seen as op- oppositional or frustrating for those that want a different one. So the idea of being clear about what you want out of it and then finding out that you are you in a group that's not just about storytelling, but one that wants to be social about storytelling or constructive about learning the craft of storytelling or professional critique about storytelling, that can be a refinement that can lead to much greater degrees of satisfaction in, in whether that's the group that you need to be in. On the question of feedback... Um, this is it's essential to be a good facilitator that you can model good receiving of feedback because you're going to be midwifing situations where people are giving each other feedback and if you can't take it well yourself why should they listen to your guidance so um, it's it's a tricky spot because a facilitator can sometimes get critical statements directed at at him or herself in in front of everyone when it happens. And so you need to be able to be graceful under fire as a facilitator, especially if you're asking other people to um, navigate tricky moments around feedback too. So when, when I do facilitation training with people, that's one of the things we work very deeply on is to to break down the barriers to hearing accurate feedback from, from their peers. And we spend a lot of time bonding as a group. That It's not all about giving rough information. There's certainly a lot of appreciation. However, we want to, as quickly as possible, get to the place where we are unguarded with each other around what we genuinely think is happening and know that the caring and quality of the relationship will carry us through uh, potentially embarrassing or awkward moments because somebody fell short of the mark or, or somebody felt another person fell short of the mark, and we don't want them to sit on that information. Now, I would think that you'd have a parallel in the storytelling world of you, you should have a conversation just like in any other group. Do you want feedback with each other about your craft or not? And I don't think there's a right and wrong answer. It's just be clear about is it that kind of group or not so that you've got the right kind of people with a similar answer to that question in the same group. 
one of the common experiences is that there's definitely a hard critique group and a soft critique group, meaning a, a group of people who believe in affirmation-based training and a group of people who, who believe more in a direct, honest, experiential training. And there's even people who belong to both groups. And you know, But you have reminded me of the story of the woman, the Zen story of the woman. Do you know that story? Say more. Um, there, there were two Zen monks who are real Zen monks whose names I do not know. But they were walking in, uh, in Japan and back in the 900s. And it, it was a sin for a monk, especially a monk who was um, a Zen monk, to touch a woman. And they were walking along and they came to a, a creek that was muddy and flowing very fast. And there was a woman of the night standing there with her beautiful silk outfit um, waiting to cross and the bridge had been washed out and it was clear that she could cross but then her feet and her if she took her shoes off or at least her her dress would become muddy and and so they they looked at this and she looked at them and and she clearly was in distress and so the older monk walked over and picked her up and carried her across the creek and the younger monk followed him over, and he clearly was very upset. Here was his elder, and he was carrying the woman, and this was the greatest sin against their against their order that he could possibly commit. And so the older monk put the woman down, and they walked on, and they walked on for miles and miles. And finally, after a great deal of quiet, the younger monk turned to the older one and said, how could you carry that woman across the creek? And the elder monk said, why are you still carrying her? Well, it's, I, I think that's, it's true that oftentimes when we struggle about whether to give feedback or not, that um, if the decision is made not to, then there's still a lot of second guessing that often happens later. It's very hard to decide against it and then let it go. So if you're not able to let it go, then you're going to need to find a way to get it out in a way that has got its best chance of being constructive. Usually in those situations, I think it's a good strategy as if you're unsure about the receptivity of it, it would be to say something on the order of, I've got something critical to say and I don't know whether you want to hear it or not and I'm undecided about whether it's a good idea to approach you. What advice do you give me? And then you've given created opportunities for the person to decide whether that's an okay time for them or not. And, and if they say yes, then there's a different level of permission to proceed and it and it and if they say no, then you've you can at least relieve yourself of the burden of that you've given themselves the chance. It was interesting to me in the the meetings we got here in the Vale that there was a lot of, I mean, there's old stuff that people were carrying a long time. I mean, decades. People were living here in this community with each other and had these feelings, and they had never really put it on the table and said, twenty years ago, you did this." And I still feel dissed about it. And I was really, the thing that was most impressive to me about this process was this whole concept of holding and how that holding allowed these individuals to work out these processes or these feelings without having to go through therapy, it felt like. They just kind of said, this is what I feel. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that and again, I'll, I'll repeat what I said earlier, that I don't have a background in therapy, but from reading, I understand that when they've done tests that indicate 
if you take a you know a double blind study kind of thing and try a certain modality around therapy and there's a lot of those things out there there's no evidence no empirical evidence to support that people statistically significantly get better using any therapy over nothing except good intentions good listening itself is just as likely to produce good results as any particular modality now to be fair i think that some people who are practitioners of certain modalities are very good at what they do and have a high success rate in therapy so i'm not saying there's nothing there but it's really not because of the therapy, I think, so much is that they're good listeners. So that said, I think that the the key thing about the the things that happened this weekend that you got to experience, Eric, was that what I did that might, in some cases, these things may have already been said many times to each other. So the fact that they've been said to each other is, is maybe new and it may not be new. But what was new is I held them differently than they were. Generally, we get defensive and reactive, and then it's an exchange of salvos back and forth, and there's no movement. There's just a hardening of hearts and a deepening of bunkers. One of the things that, that happened is there was a moment, and I don't want to name any names in the community, but there, one community member was going back into how someone who had died many years ago, mm-hmm. and that person, and how that person drove them crazy, and da-da-da, and, and the the other community member who was um, the daughter of that dead member um, reacted to that and began to cry. And she basically said, every time you tell that story, and, and that first member, community member has told that story many, many times in my in meetings. I've seen her tell it. And the, the daughter said, every time you tell that story, it's like you poke your finger right in my heart. And that's when I really got it. I mean, I've been watching this stuff now. I mean, you've, I've probably seen you work, for, I want to say, for four or five days at this point. And, and I finally got it. Because when we, when we re-trigger that hurt and there's no safety in it, we're just scarring it again. We're just opening the wound. Mm-hmm. So the thing that you got to see me do today in that instance was reach out to each person in turn one at a time and make sure I got what their experience was both in terms of the person who had the memory of the bad treatment from years ago and the person who who feels hurt anew each time the memory, the hurtful memory about her father was brought into play. And then what I focused on is once we got an accurate statement about what that feeling was from each person, about not about the person who's dead, but what was at stake was the current relationship between these people. And so how each one could honor that they saw and heard what the other's experience was, but they wanted different behavior than they were getting. And so the people, there were two people today who had been engaged in this remembering the negative story. And in each case, I think today, they felt heard by the daughter that they had bad experiences, and they could say, I also get it. How not only was I hurt years ago, but I can see how you are hurt by our telling that story. And that doesn't serve our relationship today. And I didn't mean to be doing that damage. Seeing it and hearing it now from you in the safety that is possible because I feel held just like you're being held, we can try to do differently. We can try to let that go. I get it now how that's not serving us or you. But that's not a possible request to make until you hold that person in the accurate statement of what their distress is. You can't make requests and expect them to go well when you haven't done the holding first. 
It's all the harder to do, of course, if you don't like what somebody is doing. If their behavior in their distress is itself provocative, you want to comment and limit that. And you think, oh, this is great. You're feeling damaged and look what you're doing. You're damaging others, you idiot. And that's maybe what you feel like saying. But that doesn't work. It doesn't land because the person doesn't feel held first. You can make requests, but only after they feel like you get me first. And again, um, I want to encourage everybody to try these things, but I also need to tell you that Laird makes it sound so much simpler than it actually is. (laughs) Um, I want to give you a chance to talk about the International Fellowship for Intentional Community. Back in 1986, as part of a group of um, people who had been doing community networking for a number of years and got together to try to talk about whether we could create something bigger than we'd been a part of up until that point. And so we had the dream of uh, starting up a then-dormant shell of a nonprofit called the Fellowship for Intentional Communities, and we revived that defunct organization and, and changed the name slightly from the preposition from four to or, or Fellowship of Intentional Communities, plural, to Fellowship for Intentional Community, with the idea being we were trying to invite people who were inspired by community to be part of it, not just people who were already living in it. We've come to recognize then, right at the start, and then through all the years we've been active, that the interest in cooperative living greatly exceeds the numbers of people who actually do it. So, um, so, so for instance, we do a quarterly publication called Communities Journal of Cooperative Living, and, and the, the bulk of our subscribers don't live in intentional community, even though we write about it all the time. They are people who, who want to know the stories of that or, or who's learning what and be inspired by that to find more community in their lives. It may not ever be in the form of an intentional community. What we mean, by the way, when we use that phrase is intentional community is groups of people that live together on the basis of explicit common values. Generally, they own land together or control a leasehold on property together. So there's a physical part of living together that is almost always a part of intentional communities. Um, however, when we say that, we think that there are our best guess is there's about a hundred thousand people in the United States that live in some form of self-identified intentional community who, who embrace that label on their own. Uh, however, there's a very soft boundary here that there's a lot of groups. When does a group house become an intentional community? It's a question of when they see themselves that way, not when we judge them to be that way. They're not. There's not a, a hard and fast rule or a clear boundary of where you cross from one into the other. When we think, though, if we ask a different question, and the fellowship has been doing this in the last five years especially, and we ask, how many people want more community in their life? We figure that 100,000 people that live in intentional community would jump to 100 million people in this country, say one in three, would then, we feel that's a conservative estimate, would say, I don't have as much community in my life today as I did when I grew up or in the neighborhood where I was part of. And and I would like more. I, I, I miss that. I wish there was this sense of connection and belonging, safety that we had in the neighborhood where I grew up. And I don't know where to get that or how to create it. That's a very common lament. We have a fragmented and alienated culture, and it's getting worse, not better. So what can we do? Where is that hunger? I started this this interview with a story about human beings are social animals, and, and part of our damage is we don't even know how to get along with each other very well anymore, especially around serious questions of what do we want to do in the world and what do we want to do with our lives. 
So part of the fellowship's work is not just helping groups form intentional communities or helping intentional communities solve problems, although we do that too. We figure a bigger market for us, bigger societal benefit, is not just how to do that thing, which is a very specialized and very small niche in the culture. It's also to help people where they are get more community in their life. How can the lessons learned in the crucible and intensity of intentional community living be translated into neighborhoods, into churches, into workplaces, into any of those environments in which we want more connection and belonging but may not go in for the whole ball of wax where we eat meals together every night and and uh, and share a woodlot. So the fellowship is involved in that much broader field, and we try to also model cooperation among sister networks. So there are there's at least a dozen groups in the United States that are also involved in promoting community as a core value as part of their mission, and so we try to make common cause with those. One of them's uh, here in Yellow Springs where, where you live, Eric, and that would be uh, Community Solutions. Uh, used to be Community Service. It was started uh, years ago by one of the people that's uh, part of the part of the Vale community that you live in, and they they are one of those sister organizations, and there and there's a number of them around the U.S. So we try to lead the way in sitting down with them and figuring out how to do joint events or joint marketing efforts and 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 that kind of thing. So we're trying to model the cooperation that we are advocating as a core value in living by the way we conduct our nonprofit operations. I serve as the administrator and for that organization. There's about 20 people. Everybody works part-time or volunteers in that organization. Nobody has it as a full-time job. We do things mostly through publications like Communities Directory, which is available both in print and then online. We have a, a very active website at www.ic.org, and we also do newsletters. We do a quarterly magazine I'd mentioned earlier in the interview called Communities Magazine. We do the website itself. We do semi-annual board meetings or organizational meetings that we rotate around the country. Twice they've been here at your your community, in fact, over the years. And we we also do events, like weekend events called Art of Community. The next one will probably be in the Bay Area, probably in the Northern California, in spring of 2011. We do... A community bookshelf. You got to see books I brought here where we, we specialize in titles on cooperation, community living, right livelihood, and cooperative group dynamics. We sell those through the webs and at websites. So we do all of those kinds of activities to try to make the resources and inspiration of group living available to the widest possible audience. You probably should have said this, asked this at the beginning, but for those people who are listening because they listen to all my shows and they may not have a particular interest in community and community living, how would you make the case for someone who has hardly any experience with community and community living? Uh, when they think of community living, maybe they think of um, a hippie lifestyle, and they, they're thinking of, um, of, of the commune, of the 1960s commune situation. And there are so many different ways currently in the world of living in community. What are the advantages? What, why live in community? It's building a life that's built centered around relationship. If you buy the concept I offered at the beginning that we are social animals, we are hard, hardwired to be social, this is following that thread. Let's have a, a life that's based around your connections with fellow humans that you care about and share common values with. 
You can lead a lifestyle that's less consumptive. You can have access to high-quality things without owning them because you share them, because you live in close approximation. A lot of times it's not what you do, it's who you do it with and how you carry that out that leads to a high level of satisfaction. It's possible to free people up to do things that they're really passionate about because other basic needs are met by the other people you live with. It's about quality of life, basically, without having to chase so many dollars to create it. And and for that matter, some of the things that the FIC, the Fellowship for Intentional Community, offers, you might be interested even if you're not expecting to find a happy life in intentional community. How many people out there want more community in their life? I mean, I can put that out to your listeners, too. How many would like to be able to solve problems more cooperatively? How to have groups where people hear each other better? Those are some of the products. These are the things we learn how to do in intentional community that have very broad application. If we want to object to the way the federal government conducts international affairs, how we bully other countries, we have to learn to not bully at home in the small groups we're part of now. And if we can learn how to behave cooperatively in our small groups, in our villages, neighborhoods, and then by degrees into our cities and other larger units, we'll then be in a position to tell the federal government, stop doing this other thing. Stop making war. Stop being a bully. Start learning how to cooperate. Do like we do. But first we have to do it ourselves, I think. So to change the larger paradigm, to make it a larger shift, a larger story shift, we have to start on the smaller units. And that's also what you talked about with the community setting, that in order to change the larger story of a community, you have to start with the smaller units of the individuals. Mm -hmm. My job a lot of times is to raise the dead when I come into a group. That is, I have to show them how a thing that you think is not possible is possible. I have to show them a miracle. I have to show them how a thing that looks unsolvable can become solvable. I have to untie the Gordian knot. Partly I can do that because I have a large pattern library at this point. It's pretty hard for a group to show me something I've never seen. I know what works. I know how to walk through the fire and not be burnt. However, the thing is I also believe that it's possible, and I believe in the power of believing. So I come in thinking a good thing is going to happen, and over time I've learned more and more how to make that happen. So the very first thing is to sell the group on the idea that you have a story that it can't be different. Let me show you a different story. Let me show you one where it works, where we can be authentic, where we can say the hard things, and we can actually feel closer at the end of it and more resolved and more connected rather than exhausted and divided. So then once I show them that, once I give them hope, then I can also get the next step, if there's time, if there's interest, is to give them the tools where they can learn to fish for themselves. Hi, I'm Ann Glover, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Okay, now do I go? Okay, monkey, yeah, go ahead, your turn. Okay, hi. Um, no, wait a second. Um, wait, can we start over, because I forgot if I... No, monkey, just say hi, this is monkey. Hi, but Ann, what, they don't know me. No, but th- that's why you're introducing yourself. Hi, this is monkey. No, I'm monkey. I know, I'm just telling you what to say. Hi, I'm monkey. And this is you're listening to. And you're, but what if they're not listening anymore? They're listening, monkey. Just talk to them. Um, okay, you're listening to the art of storytelling. But Aunt, Aunt. What, monkey? You say with Brother Wolf. Come on. Oh, yeah. Um, but why is he called Brother Wolf? It's his name. Well, his name's Eric, but he's calling himself Brother Wolf. Why don't we just say with Eric Wolf? 
Well, you can say that, Monkey. Okay. Hi, this is Monkey, and you're listening to Eric. No, but then they'll think I'm Eric. No, they won't, Monkey. They really won't. Okay. Hi, this is Monkey. Um, and you gotta wrap it up, Monkey. Wrap what up? End. We're running out of time. Okay. Hi, this is Monkey, and um, um, you're listening to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Wolf. Eric, is that it? That's it, monkey. Well done. So do you have an offer for our listeners? My offer is if you want more community in your life, if you want more sense of how to do that thing, how to work through that things, maybe I can help. You can do this by contacting me. I have a blog on the website. You can visit there and see my writings about my life. It's called communityandconsensus.blogspot.com. I put a posting in there almost every three days. I, I got talked into starting this as a way to promote interest in community back in December of 08, and to my amazement, I now have well over 200 entries in there. It's, uh, it turns out life's pretty interesting, and i got a lot to say. And maybe that there's a way in which I can inspire you, too. I can, I can maybe either show you a magic trick or show you how to fish. I want to remind the listeners that I have a free e-course online at artofstorytellingshow.com slash storytelling. It's a nine-part email course. It's called Zen and the Art of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. And it breaks down performance and family and um, just relaxed community storytelling into seven stages. And if you're nervous about speaking in front of groups... If you're nervous about talking or telling presentations in groups, this would be a great way of looking at that skill set and improving that skill set. And the other thing I'd like to suggest that if you are interested in learning more about storytelling, I also have started the International Storytelling School, which is at thestorytellingschool.com. And if you're interested in learning to be a storyteller and applying performance-based or community-based storytelling, I would suggest you check out that website. However, if you're interested in facilitation-based storytelling, as Laird was describing during the show, I would recommend you check out his blog. Laird, do you got any final words for the international storytelling community? Storytellers are inspirational, and they touch. They succeed when they touch the passions and hearts of their audiences. And I think that's a wonderful thing. That We have this awful model in this culture of that the appropriate way to be in a meeting is to be dispassionate and to be calm and collected at all times. And I love that storytellers try to inspire people to hearts to sing and bring their full passion into the meeting, into engagement with one another. So I think you do a great service to enliven that that heart in people. And uh, I applaud that effort. I think I want, I feel that I want to bring us back to this idea of untying the Gordian knot. I love that pattern. I love that concept that the undoable is possible. In some cases, it's a matter of practice. And in some cases, it's just a matter of finding a different story. Finding a story for yourself. Finding a story for your community. Finding a story for your country that is different than the one you may have been told. 
growing up. Laird, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Eric. I enjoyed it. This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. 